0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another brand new episode of the Cat. I always say brand new, but you could be listening to this in like 2024 and be like, "Some it's really old. <laughs> you filmed this in 2021. Covid was still a thing. Let's hope that it's not by 2024." I want to be able to travel places. What are we talking about? Today's episode is all about John List, the Righteous Killer. And uh, righteous here is in um. They're called quotation marks. I feel like there's something else, but you know where it's like righteous killer. Um, so we got some sort of Dexter character going on today. Brilliant. Those psychos who always think they're doing the right thing. Or maybe he's religiously motivated. There was Bible John before. No, he was just a psycho. Uh, Catacrybillus, what happens? Uh, If you're new here, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. You might be wondering what on earth is going on. What have I clicked on? Why am I here? My name is Simon. I'm going to read a script that our fine scriptwriter Callum has put together. And then if you're watching this show, you're on YouTube. Hello. Uh, and you'll see some graphics. If you're listening to this show on a podcast, hello as well. You'll get some sounds and all of that stuff. And that's put together by our wonderful producer, Jen. Enough with the blither bother. Let's just get on with it, shall we? On the morning of the 1st of June, 1989, Housewife Dolores Clark, me, Miller, of... Mm, oh my God... Midlothian in Virginia received a phone call that would blow her world to pieces. It was about her husband, Bob. He'd just been arrested by the FBI. A team of uh, <laughs> that's gotta be an intense phone call. Just you're just regular was she a housewife? Yeah, regular housewife going about your life in nineteen eighty-nine. And it's not like the local police station called because he was drunk or something, you're like, oh, it's not like him to get drunk, but I mean I guess. No no no. The FBI be calling. <laughs> it's like oh I think is that like Scotland Yard in the UK the weird thing is just because of television I know so much more about how like police works in the US because there's so many like cop shows and stuff um but yeah that's a pretty intense phone call a team of agents had broken the perpetual boredom of the small accounting firm in Richmond where he worked and dragged him off in handcuffs how is that possible she must have thought as her husband's boss delivered the news bob was no criminal in fact he was probably the most boring mild-mannered man you could ever meet 62 years old balding perspectacled and god fearing the only thrill it ever got was discovering a rounding error in a spreadsheet yeah i don't imagine like the fbi raided many accounting companies for for i guess he's a murderer because the title's killer <laughs> but that's pretty intense But to hear the fbi tell it dolores never actually knew the real bob clark at all in fact they said that wasn't even his real name it was actually a man named john list that the feds were after and they were convinced that he and old bob were one and the same dolores was about to discover that her husband wasn't the white bread christian gentleman that she thought he was but one of the most notorious most detested most monstrous killers in american history who had been on the fbi's most wanted list for almost two decades have i never heard of this guy Like, I feel like, you know, considering all the stuff I've watched or listened to or made, it's that I've never heard of John List. Well, um, I guess I'm I'm almost certainly about to learn a great deal about him, aren't I? And so are you. Hello. Who was John List? (laughs) There we go, Simon. Maybe just read the scripts, fact boy. So, who exactly was the man behind this fake identity? Well, it turns out that this painfully boring, church-going accountant was in reality... A painfully boring church-going accountants okay so journalist wasn't exactly a master of disguise in fact his new life was so similar to the old one it's a wonder it took 18 years to catch up to him is it a wonder though is it a wonder we've we've heard about the police and their competence early in earlier episodes of the casual criminalist although the last episode i recorded they were really good so i'm like i mean i guess it's like swings and roundabouts isn't it which means uh, pros and cons americans i realize that phrase didn't cross the pond but it should along with the phrase bell end. by the way can't believe that's not a thing in america it's very useful totally irrelevant to what's going on now although maybe john list was a bellend sounds like it born in 1925 to german immigrant parents john emil list was a michigan native raised in a strict lutheran household his parents enforced strict regimentation throughout his upbringing centered around intensive bible study yay his authoritarian father drummed it into little john that above all else, a man should be self-sufficient and provide for his family and PRAISE JESUS! But, I added that bit. But on the flip side, his parents were already deep into middle age when he was born, and were so terrified of him getting hurt that they essentially turned him to a complete shut-in. As you'd expect, John grew up to become quite a repressed, neurotic young man, not particularly well-liked by his peers. Yeah, it's really tricky, because I've got kids, and it's like, you don't want them to get hurt and stuff, but you also are aware that if you stop them, like, from doing things, they're just going to become, like shut in and afraid of taking any risk whatsoever but on the other hand you're like oh please don't cross the street without looking <laughs> please cross when the green man is there <laughs> please um yeah it's, i guess there's a balance you have to find i'm working on finding it right now i'm like please don't hurt yourself please don't hurt yourself <laughs> my daughter fell off a bench i like took her for a five minute walk without my wife and like, she comes back with a big scratch on her face and crying like, oh my god what did you do and i was like well she was climbing on a bench and i thought it looked really pretty so i backed up to take a photograph and she fell off I deleted the photograph so my wife can't see our daughter. You know, you know, it's those live photos (laughs) that that Apple insists on doing. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those. Uh, I deleted that. He was, by all accounts, extremely intelligent, but lacked even the basic social skills to function alongside others. What I'm saying is that from an early age, he was basically doomed to a career as an accountant. That's when he got his MA in after a stint as a lab technician during World War II, and John would be called into service again in 1950 as the Korean War began to heat up. At that time, he was assigned to Fort Eustis in Virginia. It was there that he met a woman named Helen, a widow whose first husband was killed in combat. It'd be one of those things where it's like, yeah you get you get called up for war and it's like i'm an accountant you got any books i could keep rather than going off to korea and getting killed please i don't really know much about the korean war i know it's like one of those proxy communist wars but i feel like vietnam gets a lot more coverage she had a daughter named brenda from that first marriage and not long after meeting john she was pregnant for a second time our prudish apostle was as you'll soon see very selective with which part of the bible he followed ah those religious people they're the best or right? it's like yeah, yeah just pick and choose the bits you like and ignore everything else it's not how it works is it fearing what his bible bashing parents might think if they discovered he was having premarital sex john agreed to helen's demand of marriage the two were joined in holy matrimony on december the 1st 1951 after which brenda pulled the old baby baiting switcheroo maneuver what is that so she was pregnant she revealed she was never pregnant at all oh no oh no john she that's not a really strong way to start a marriage, is it? Jeez. John was understandably pissed, but in his old-school Christian morality, getting divorced was almost as bad as siring a bastard. He decided to stick the marriage out, despite the unfortunate start. Unfortunate start, so you basically are on marriage based on lies. Brilliant start, guys. This is going to work out. Spoiler alert. I mean, I haven't read this out of time, but uh, if anyone's thinking this is going to end well... um. You're listening to a true crime podcast, not the Happily Ever After Married Couple podcast, are you? There's probably a podcast called that out there. And any hope of being bailed out of his predicament by a communist's bullet were dashed when the army reassigned him to Finance Corps for his second tour in Korea. Finance Corps is actually a thing. I was kind of joking that, about having to do some accounting or whatever. But it's like, if I get if I get dragged into some more and be like, do you have a YouTube Corps? I can make videos. I can make videos about the war. Please don't let me be killed. People are going to think I'm such a coward. And I am. Uh, not one of the branches of the military that they make a lot of war movies about rather than manning a machine gun he'd be pushing a pencil for the remainder of his military service after a few more years of high intensity war accountancy (laughs) list left the military and settled into a typical suburban life with helen in the second half of the 1950s they had three kids together for real this time patricia john jr and fred to provide for his growing family john took a job as a uh, a string of accounting jobs each blander than the last I have to say, starting off with like war accountancy, while I imagine like accountancy is not the most exciting thing in the world, war accountancy is probably one of the more exciting things. And also the amount of money you've got to be dealing with is going to be huge, right? colleagues from those days remembered him as an odd guy who was just a bit up himself and generally unlikable he had learned to completely conceal all emotion from a young age which gave him a robotic demeanor sort of the guy that just stares right through you in fact john was so strange that he barely had any friends outside of work either his only social contact was the parishioners at his church in kalamazoo it's a brilliantly named place in michigan and the kids he taught at Sunday school. Still, though, our soulless tin man managed to build a successful career for himself. In 1960, he was offered a well paying job in New York. Within another five years, he was the vice president of a bank in New Jersey. Now, John was able to provide all the luxuries of the American dream for his family, just as his father always demanded. Brilliant when you're in your 40s or something, or 50s, and you are, no, 40s, something like that, I don't know. But uh, still living your parents' dreams, huh? don't do that it's probably you know i don't it's not probably not going to lead to the greatest level of happiness now i understand if the biography of an accountant's rise to riches isn't exactly raising your blood pressure i don't know it seems fairly relaxing i'm having a good time and i also know that he's probably going to turn into a horrible killer (laughs) in the fbi say he was monstrous or the most one of the most monstrous it's like have you heard of ed gein (laughs) i mean holy shit if anything, the absolute excruciating mundanity, mundanity of his character makes his bone-chilling crimes stand out all the more. Man on the run. From that relatively bland origins. Oh, this is Callum has written a flash forward, so I guess we're jumping to the future right now. Noki dokie. From that relatively bland origin stories, we're jumping back, forward in time to the early 1970s we're jumping back forward in time callum this is confusing as back to the future title uh to the 1970s when the story of john list took an unexpected turn so we're in the future we i see because we started this in the future and now we're going back to the future oh my god (laughs) i'm so confused i wish i had a bigger brain um to the 1970s when the story of john list took an unexpected turn that's when the fbi raised the alarm our mild mannered accountant was on the run to be considered highly dangerous his license plates and description were passed to law enforcement up and down the east coast ultimately his car was found but by this point there was no trace of the man who owned it he had just abandoned the vehicle at jfk airport in new york about a month prior this was the last trace that investigators were able to find of his existence if he's a month ahead of them he definitely has some like excellent system for finding out that he's getting in trouble because if that's a really long head start on december 12th 1971 the day of the funeral police officers cruised around the block surrounding the cemetery in plain clothes hoping that list might have returned to town for the event no such luck he had well and truly disappeared in fact by this point the man named john emil list didn't even exist at all oh the abandoned vehicle was the last trace of john list for years by the 1980s any hope of capturing the fugitive accountant had gone up in smoke much like the opulent mansion house where he and his family had lived in westfield new jersey during the final years of his past life wait did he burn down his house the house burned down years ago, and pieces of rubble still lay scattered on the vacant lot like toppled gravestones, a grim reminder of what happened way back in 1971. The events of that December were now shared as more of an urban legend than a true crime story. List himself was the boogeyman at the center of it all, a creature who the parents of Westfield threatened naughty children with. Don't stay out after dark, or John List will get you with his guns. The most surprising thing about this... All I'm thinking is like, wait, they just left his burned-out house there for years? Wasn't it a really nice house in a nice part of town? I feel like if a house burns down, maybe, is this just a Europe thing? But it's like that shit is demolished so fast and a new house appears because, like, people need houses. And it's that, I mean, all the time. Some said that Satanists burned the boogeyman's house down. Some said that List himself returned to do it. But what all the young people of Westfield generally agreed on was that you should stay the f- away from it don't live on the same street don't even walk past they're <laughs> like why are we not building a new house there because it's haunted i'll be like if i if i was there i'd just be like i'm gonna build a house there because i don't believe in haunted and uh i probably pick it up on the cheap every now and then the neighbors would have to call the cops on the teenagers who dared each other to go inside or would be ghost hunters from out of town and as far as the cops were concerned the man himself might as well have been a ghost by now That's how perfectly and completely he had vanished off the face of the earth. Tips came in throughout the 80s, but they were all dead ends by the end of the decade. The case was 18 years old and about as cold as can be. Most of the original detectives had retired or moved on to other positions, leaving New Jersey's most unsolvable mystery on the desk of a new pair of investigators. Captain Frank Maranka at the county prosecutor's office and Detective Barney Tracy, Of the Westfield PD. The two men had shared notes on the case for several years, but never managed to make any progress. Then something happened which opened up a novel avenue of investigation. A little known TV show, (laughs) it's not little known, it's America's Most Wanted, isn't it? (laughs) Called America's Most Wanted, premiered on the Fox network in 1988. Maranka and Tracy sensed an opportunity to inject a bit of fresh life into the investigation. What was the harm in trying after all? I feel like America's Most Wanted is one of those shows where, if you're like a runaway killer out there and you see that America's Most Wanted is becoming really possible, you're like, ah, oh, for sake, not this shit again. It's like when they catch people with DNA. You're like, oh, God, why did I commit all those crimes in the 1970s and left DNA everywhere? Brother, please don't get one of those ancestry tests. Come on. Now we'll get back to today's episode in just a second but first a word from our fantastic sponsor today that's Wondry and their new podcast against the odds plane crash in the andes imagine you're in a plane flying over the andes you notice that the wings of the aircraft are getting dangerously close to the snowy peaks and then in an instant everything changes. From Wondery, against the odds, Plane Crash in the Andes is an all-new season that looks at the unbelievable survival story of a terrifying plane crash and the passengers' grueling fight to stay alive. I'm vaguely familiar with this story, because a while ago, I can't remember which… I have a few YouTube channels, I made a video about this, I can't remember which channel it was on, but it is a crazy story. And this podcast dives, like, well deep into it and explores all of the angles and yeah i mean it's much longer it's super in depth it's a really good one the plane which carried a uruguayan rugby team and their fans crashed in the high andes the 32 survivors must battle sub-zero temperatures and razor thin air while they wait for rescuers to arrive but then as days pass they realize no rescue is coming they are on their own in this frigid and desolate landscape how will they keep themselves alive without food water or warm clothing, and with no means of contacting the outside world. This season of Against the Odds Plane Crashed in the Andes is the unbelievable story of their survival. Yeah, if you enjoyed this podcast, which I feel is kind of me telling a story combined with, you know, the odd sound effects and uh, kind of atmospheric stuff, this podcast is the same sort of vibe as uh, as this new show from Wondery. So I, I really think you'd dig it. Uh, you could go to listen to Against All the Odds on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Wondery, Fill the story. And now back to today's episode. The Bust When Marenka and Tracy sent the case files to host John Walsh and his production team, they were essentially hoping for a miracle. After all, it had been almost a whole 19 years since anyone last saw him. He could have changed his whole appearance by now. Hell, he could even be living in South America or dead for all they knew. How do you begin going about a task like that? Thankfully, the science of modern forensics had an answer. The team enlisted the help of a sculptor named Frank Bender, who was also a self-taught expert in forensic anthropology together with the help of a forensic psychologist the sculptor produced an aged bust of what john list would look like now in his 60s science is cool I mean, it just is. It wasn't just a matter of scribbling some wrinkles on an old Polaroid and whipping up a plaster cast version. Bender's process was all about getting to know the subject as deeply as possible, to envision how every part of their psychology and lifestyle might affect how they look. I was wondering what a psychologist had to do with this, but now I understand it. Because it's like, yo, if he's been smoking, if he's, you know, if he was a glutton... If, I don't know, he had, like, if he was balding, all of this stuff you can learn about him and use that to, like, okay, maybe he's a bit gaunt, maybe he's got, like, that smoker's face. I don't know, you know what, like, when smokers get old, they look a bit weird. Um, Or, you know, maybe he's got, maybe he's a bit chubby, all of this stuff. That's pretty clever. I like it. There's a quote from him. I get into the head of the person. In a sense, I want to become the person while I'm working on the fugitive. I want to feel that person. I want to know everything about that person. All right, mate, it's a bit weird. Daddy, chill. For that, they begin with his genetics, gathering pictures of Liszt's parents to see how his father's cheek sagged with age. This is so cool. Then they study his diet and lifestyle habits. After that, all the little psychological nuances that might be etched onto a person's face. For example, Bender even added a very slight downward slant to the sculptor's lips, signifying the constant fear of capture weighing on the old boy all those years. But the real masterstroke was a pair of dark, thick-framed glasses. A psychological profile of this suggested that he wasn't really vain enough to wear contact lenses, but was intellectually vain enough that he would want to wear a pair of glasses somewhat similar to his old ones, but darker. The idea was that he probably wanted to appear more important than he really was, reminding him of the old days when he was a big shot at the bank. Do glasses make people look more important? I mean, I feel like they let people make people look smarter. For example, me. I'm in very smooth brain, but I wear glasses and that makes people think that for some reason I'm smart. Uh, it's, <laughs> I don't know if it's people like, oh, me must be important, he's wearing glasses. Ah. That is a lot of guesswork there, but it's amazing how accurate it would turn out to be. The bust. Oh, I see. We've got the bust as a title twice because there was a bust of him. He was like, you know, like a, a sculptor's bust. The result was a lifelike visage of what John List should conceivably had looked like have looked like almost 19 years after anyone last saw him. The model made a relatively brief appearance on the May 21st, 1989 episode of America's Got Wanted, followed America's Most Wanted, sorry, following a segment of reenactments of the events of 1971. Host John Walsh led the appeal for information while the cameras focused in on the uncanny plaster image of the renegade accountant. That image reached 22 million households all across the country, the biggest dragnet that any cold case detective could hope for. And among the viewers who tuned in that night, lo and behold, was one Robert Peter Clark of Richmond, Virginia. If I was that dude, and I saw my face on America's Most Wanted after all my serial killing past, or I don't know what he got up to, but I'm assuming it's bad, I'd be like, well, I wasn't in South America, but I goddamn soon well am going to (laughs) be. I'm not going to be an accountant Uh, Doing exactly the same thing close to where I was before which I get the feeling is what this guy was Or did he just have a similar job to it as before just go like I don't know go somewhere where it's not extradition and I don't know become a fisherman or something cliche like that Come on he and his wife Dolores tuned in just as the eight-minute segment was coming to a close and Bob was shocked to Find a mirror image of himself staring back at him from the TV screen. I was perspiring like anything He later said Bob had been so careful all those years to stay hidden, stay out of trouble, and keep his fingerprints off the record, yet somehow, this damn sculpture had managed to learn everything about him. I don't... that doesn't seem realistic. Because I don't think when... I don't know if this is just me, but when someone says I look like someone else, I look at that person and I'm like... They don't look anything like me. And this is like even before now where people are like, Oh, look, it's binging with Babish. It's Michael from Source. Like before. Um, and people will be like, Look, this is my friend. He looks exactly like you. But like, he looks nothing like me. What are you talking about? And I think that's because you like look in the mirror so much. You know, you're very familiar with what you look like. That You kind of have a distorted perception of what you look like. Or you're very familiar with what you look like. So you don't see yourself as other people see you. So I, I don't know. People, like, I don't see some bald bearded dude with glasses on the TV But it looks like me. I'd be like, it looks like a bald bearded, bearded dude, doesn't it? I mean, it's not going to be that similar. And I, even if it is, I don't think, it, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. An awkward moment passed as bob slash john prayed the missus wouldn't catch on that he was the wanted man depicted in plaster cast on tv but thankfully she wasn't paying too much attention and the show cut to a commercial before she could connect the dots bob breathed a sigh of relief but little did he know that the wheels of his downfall were already in motion well i get the feeling he definitely knew that the wheels of his of his downfall were already in motion because unless his wife is the only person he knows and the only person watching america's most wanted who knows him um i admit like i said my dude get 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 onto that south american fisherman lifestyle and maybe get your face chained by some you know sketchy mob doctor south of the border okay tips for criminals that was thanks to another woman over in colorado who had managed to put two and two together wanda flannery was a neighbor of bob's from his denver days when he worked as a fry cook at a city hotel the image turned out to be so accurate that she recognized her old neighbor right away and on top of that his entire character fitted the profile Wanda knew him as as a quiet guy, bookish and reclusive, a bit of a religious nut who only really left the house to go to work and church. And all in all, just a bit off now she finally understood why he made her so uncomfortable. Her call was among the 250 tips which came in on the night of the broadcast. And so, just 11 days after the broadcast, a 19-year manhunt came to an end. When FBI agent Kevin August walked into that Richmond accounting firm, he must have felt a bit of deja vu as he spotted the bald spot of Bob Clark who sat hunched over his desk. When he raised his head, he was an exact match for the sculpture down to the last detail. He was even wearing the exact same style and color of specs. No, what are you doing? (laughs) Also, if you have glasses, get contacts or laser surgery. If you're bald, get a wig or a hair transplant. Come on. If you have a beard, shave it off. I'm just describing my plan. (laughs) Seriously, if you look at the man and the model side by side, you can barely tell them apart. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that this was the monster of Westfield, and he would be finally facing justice for the nightmare he unleashed upon the quiet suburban town almost two decades ago. Yeah, we have no idea what he did other than that it was monstrous. (laughs) You're really stringing us along, Callum. I like it because then people listen to this show for longer or watch the video version for longer, which uh, which is good for me. (laughs) Like, algorithmically, it gets this show in front of more people. Also, leaving a review, if you're listening, does that same thing. Mm -hmm. Hint, hint. Yes, please. Westfield Bound. And let's flash back again to the mid-1980s when 60s, sorry, when John List's American dream was at its peak. He had just landed that executive role at the New Jersey bank and now had the money to move his family into one of the most desirable neighborhoods in the affluent town of Westfield. This is a town of colonial mansions, homeowners associations and good church-going families. The sort of place where your neighbours will gossip about you if the lawn grows more than a millimetre above the permitted length. Moving to a swanky suburban paradise like this seemed like the proper thing to do when you had a bit of money. A way of showing the world and the ghost of your overbearing father that you can provide for your family. That's the kind of pride List must have felt when he and his family moved their things into Breeze Knoll, a 19 room post Victorian mansion on one of the town's most desirable streets, Hillside Avenue. This guy was making some money! Think marble fireplaces, claw-footed bathtubs, four-poster beds, real luxury. It even had a self-contained apartment in the loft for John's mother, Alma, to live in. To give you an idea of how much this place must have cost him, consider the fact the ballroom at the rear featured stained glass skylight. that had to be a Louis Comfort Tiffany original. I've never heard of it. So it's like brands I've never heard of, either super expensive or super crap. It's like one or the other, because, you know, you can't afford the expensive ones, but... You know the the other ones you just never hear about because there's millions of them. It was valued somewhere around a hundred thousand dollars for that one feature alone. Wait, hang on. It was valued at a hundred thousand dollars for that one feature alone. About six hundred fifty thousand dollars today. Wait, does that mean like that part of the house was six hundred fifty thousand dollars? Because if so, that's outrageous. If the house, the whole thing was six hundred fifty thousand dollars, that seems like a bit of a steal for a house with a ballroom. Although I know what you can buy for America for your money is—I mean, obviously outside of like New York and Los Angeles and stuff—gets pretty absurd. Like I see those YouTube house tour videos, I'm like, what's up? (laughs) That seems extremely reasonable. To any outside observers, it must seem have seemed that the lists had a dream life, even though they also had their quirks. For example, John became something of a running joke among the neighbors. He was so uptight that he's cut his lawn in a shirt and tie. It's like a stereotype of an uptight accountant. Then there was the little incident with the pie. Ex-neighbor Wenda Gates recalled, When the lists moved in, my father went over with a pie my mother baked to welcome them. John List opened the door just to crack, took the pie and said, We don't socialize. <laughs> you. <laughs> lovely first impression john i'm sure you'll fit right in understandably the socially awkward sociopath never really kept much company beside his students at sunday school and the kids at his boy scout group john was a script strict disciplinarian in class and at home and he enforced an old school lutheran upbringing on his three kids however this was the 1960s and the devil was around every corner as his kids grew up they he soon lost control over them and patricia his eldest started to rebel what a surprise i mean you gotta give your kids some freedom otherwise that's gonna happen isn't it she had dreams of becoming an actress and john heard on the grapevine that she must might have started smoking pot after school oh no <laughs> ah. things i like care that my if my children do or not i mean it's like just don't smoke too much i don't want you to be one of those people who's like smoked so much pot that it's like they're always smoking pot you know what i mean it's like yeah no no nah, bro i don't smoke pot it's like yeah but you did heavily for a very long time didn't you bro didn't you <laughs> You know what it's like. List was losing control of his little Lutheran world. Even his romantic relationship was on the rocks, as by the 1960s, his wife, Helen, was a full-blown alcoholic who barely left the house. To be fair, I'd probably need half a bottle of whiskey a day if I lived with a guy like that. Yeah, yeah, I'd just I'd be on all sorts of I'd be <laughs> like, what was the girl's name? Oh, give me some of that weed, I'm confiscating it! But it wasn't just that stress that was getting to Helen. She had a dark secret of her own that was eating up her inside. In a sense, quite literally. Oh no! Does she have cancer or something, or some like, or tuberculosis? What's the, they call that consumption? Like diseases that eat from the inside. Though it's not going to be a good thing, is it? Unless, unless Callum just means it like metaphorically for uh, like a like a secret that's just mentally eating her up. Helen's big reveal. Throughout the 1960s, Helen's health had started mysteriously failing. She had had vision problems for as long as John had known her, but now the sight in her one good eye was beginning to fade. On top of that, she had trouble walking, kept falling over, and was in and out of hospital with brittle bones. The doctors couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with her, but judging by her erratic moods and periods of incoherent rambling, it appears as if part of the problem was latent schizophrenia. The patient herself knew that wasn't the case, but it wasn't until 1969 that she finally came clean to her husband's about the source of all these unexplained ailments Helen had syphilis really? this is 1960s 70s fairly sure that's treatable no now you might be thinking Big deal. Who hasn't had a little bit of syphilis every now and again? <laughs> that wasn't what I'm thinking, Callum. But I am thinking it's pretty treatable. Back then, in the old days, when Helen contracted the disease, it wasn't just a matter of a shameful visit to a clinic and a little injection in the ass. This was serious stuff. So serious that the majority of U.S. states required mandatory premarital syphilis tests to get a wedding license. Sounds like a romantic day out with a fiance. <laughs> Suddenly, the circumstances surrounding their elopement made a lot more sense to John. Helen had demanded they go to Maryland to get hitched—one of the only states where syphilis testing wasn't mandatory. Yes, this wasn't a recent diagnosis. she had be concealing a condition from him from the very first day she met. Another strong thing to build a relationship on, Helen. It's like, yeah, yeah, you got syphilis and you don't. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 John, I definitely don't have syphilis and I'm not pregnant. Uh, no, no, no. Wait, what was it? So confusing. She has syphilis and she said she doesn't she doesn't have a kid but she says she does helen you have built a marriage on lies part of this i mean i know john Lisker turned out to be like a horrible serial killer that drove you to alcoholism and he sounds like a total psycho but uh you are also not the most brilliant person ever are you she contracted it from her first husband way back in the 40s when treatment was still very rudimentary, and now she was deep into the tertiary phase of the disease. At that point, it's largely incurable even today and can cause severe damage to the brain and central nervous system. Ah, okay, so you got to have syphilis treated early or it's going to uh, cause problems. I didn't know that. Things went from bad to worse for Helen as her condition progressed, leading her deeper into alcoholism and addictions to barbiturates and tranquilizers which which she tried to keep hidden from the family. And of course, her dearest husband was almost definitely infected too. So oops a daisy. This isn't very responsible, Helen. John lists little secret. But amazingly, The fact that he was most likely in the intermediary stages of a sometimes fatal STD wasn't the biggest of List's issues. Helen wasn't the only one keeping secrets. As it turns out, our high-flying accountant actually crashed and burned just one year after getting that bank job, and suddenly didn't quite have the budget for ballrooms and Tiffany skylights. But as he learned as a child, a man was supposed to provide for his family. To admit to them that he had been laid off would be the ultimate shame. There's a quote I grew up with the idea that you should provide for your family, and to do that, you had to be a success in the job you had, or you're a failure, and that was not a good thing to be. So he decided to just pretend it didn't happen. John would get up in the morning, put on his suit, have breakfast, grab his briefcase, and head off to work. In the evening, he would come back and tell his wife about how busy his day was dealing with clients and balancing the books. <laughs> what are you up to? I mean, I get it it's like oh my god, I don't know what to say. What have I done? But uh, I mean It's a bit weird, isn't it? However in the time between leaving and returning He was actually just sitting at the train station reading the newspaper for hours until it was time to come home for years He had been performing this precarious balancing act trying to scrape together enough cash to pay for the house without revealing to his family That they were broke bro. How do you do that for years? I mean, I get it if you could do it for like a few months unless you've been manically saving or something like that but i mean at some point you're just gonna run out of money aren't you also why aren't you looking for a job like it's not like accountants there's no demand for them i'm sure if you were like a high-flying accountant at one company you could probably become at least a medium-flying accountant at another company and then probably at least earn some money i mean come on stop reading the newspaper and get a job sure he'd managed to get a few lower paying jobs along the way <laughs> there we go <laughs> but the poor but his poor people skills and obsessive compulsive work style meant that he rarely kept them for long the debt kept piling up and piling up in the end this had to skim money from his mother's savings account in order to keep the wolves from the door and even that pot would eventually run out what then john well he didn't have an answer John List was a 46-year-old, unemployed, bankrupt accountant on the verge of a midlife crisis, whose children and wife were turning away from their Christian faith. This house of cards that he had built for himself was swaying in the winds. Oh my God! It sounds like more like it was swaying, my dude. It sounds like it's em- imminently going to crash. And if it fell, he'd be revealed as a fraud and a failure to everyone who knew him. Something had to give. The horror at Breeze Knoll throughout november 1971 the mansion at 431 hillside was eerily quiet neighbors saw the lights in the windows all night but no sign of anyone coming or going not even the milkman walked up the driveway the family had left him a note saying that they'd be gone for several weeks the kids school teachers were informed that helen's ailing mother mother was at death's door in north carolina so they'd be taking an unplanned trip down there to see her the funny thing is though that none of the kids said goodbye to their friends at school the neighbors never thought much about it at first. This was a weird family at the best of times. However, as the weeks passed with no news and those light bulbs began to burn out one by one, they grew suspicious. Next door neighbors, William and Shirley Connick, would look out of their windows towards Breeze Knoll every evening, checking to see if the family had returned. This is… he's killed them or something, hasn't he? then on the evening of december the 7th they finally spotted some activity by the house which now sat completely dark after over a month of silence skirting around the walls they could make out two silhouetted figures peering through the windows and thinking it might be burglars the couple called the police when officers charles Haller and george zelensky rolled up a few minutes later those two trespassers never ran off actually they were grateful for the assistance they were a pair they weren't a pair of thieves at all they were teachers mr iliano and mr and mrs sheridan who taught the oldest list child drama at the community center i mean why are you doing this like sneaking around the house at night teachers just go in the day or go to the police or just go knock on the door in the day why are you being weird about it ilano was like an uncle to patricia It was he who had encouraged her to follow her passion for acting despite the seething disapproval of her father sounds like a bit of a legend he had met mr list on several occasions and the guy gave him the usual spine chilling bad vibes so after patricia missed four weeks of rehearsals in a row he worried that her father's disapproval might have manifested into violence she once told him after class if you hear anything about us going on vacation it's probably because he killed us all holy Oh my god, if you're a teacher, (laughs) look, I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about here. I'm not a teacher. I don't do any of this sh**. But if one of your students comes to you and says that, maybe call the police or something. Or like, take that up the food chain to somebody. Because that sh** is weird. This could just have been a bit of dark humour, but now that his young protege had been on vacation for 28 full days, Ilanu started to take that ominous warning a bit more seriously. Hell House The teachers explains all of this to officers Holler and Zelensky, who were about to find themselves wrapped up in their very own gothic horror story. It fell to them to find a way inside the creaky old house and discover the fate of the occupants. Their entrance point was a basement window around the side of the property, loose enough to pry open. The cops managed to lure themselves down into the utility room and started exploring the pitch-black mansion by torchlight, or was completely, as Americans say, flashlights. All was completely silent, but as their ears tuned in, they could hear something upstairs. Was that music? As the officers opened the door at the top of the stairs they heard classical christian hymns playing through the house's intercom system that's the point at which i have gone into horror movie survival mode and clambered right back out of that basement window in five seconds flat but the cops pressed on into the kitchen yeah callum i'm glad you're a card as well because all i'm thinking is like that creepy christian music coming over like an old school intercom system where it's like you know like that that kind of weird staticky sound. i'm gonna be out out of there and be like yo yo whose job is this I don't feel it's just my job alone. I want some backup. Maybe SWAT. They passed their flashlights over the floor and noticed some rusty red stains on the grout between the tiles, faint, as if someone had tried to clean it up. Onwards through the entrance hallway and into the parlour room, there was no sign of the family, only their smiling faces looking down from picture frames on the walls. But for some reason, the father was missing. Mr. List had been cut out of every image. (laughs) This is some horror show right now next the dining room and a tank of dead skeletal fish along one wall apparently the family were in such a rush that they left their pets to die there was only one room left on the bottom floor the ballroom which lay at the end of another long dark hallway the officer crept down the hall over the creaking floorboards and then the smell a smell which any cop who's been on the job more than a few months would recognize it was the smell of death and decay the stench became stronger and the music louder as they reached the centerpiece of the house. Here the moonlight shone brighter through the ornate skylight overhead, illuminating four sleeping bags laid out in a row at the center. Poking out from the ends were the pale white faces of Helen, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick. This... I, I know I was reading this whole episode and you're just learning about this accountant's weird life, and you know it's going to get horrible. I mean, I know it through the whole time. And then I'm just like... ah. Oh why <laughs> even though i know it would have been an eerie sight awake with no mourners completely still in silence save for the sound of hymns still playing over the speakers breeze knoll's ballroom had become a suburban tomb for the family who once filled the house with life the massacre at breeze knoll flashback so i know you're probably wondering what the actual f- well, before we continue, maybe you should ask yourself if you really want to know the answer to that question What you're about to discover is the handiwork of one of the most cold, emotionless, downright creepy murderers that I've ever come across And bear in mind, Callum does the writing for a true crime podcast on the morning of november the 9th 1971 john list sent his children off to school like any other day once they were out of sight and out of earshot he walked through the crisp autumn air to his car in the driveway in the trunk were two boxes of ammunition from which he loaded his nine millimeter stair automatic pistol a souvenir from the second world war and a 20 caliber target pistol when he returned helen was still enjoying her morning coffee in her nightgown, staring absent-mindedly out of the window from the kitchen table John later explained I approached all of them from behind so that they wouldn't realize till the last minute what I was going to do to them man why are you such a psycho why by that he meant placing a gun to the sides of their heads and pulling the trigger with an accountant's soulless precision he held the nine mm to the side of his wife's right temple the bullet passed through to the wall opposite and Helen slumped over dead a pool of blood spreading out from her head and dripping onto the floor Expressionless, John List turned away from his wife's corpse and made his way up the stairs to confront the other woman in his life, his 84-year-old mother. Alma List was in the middle of gathering ingredients from a pantry when John opened the door to a loft apartment. What was that noise? She asked. But John never answered. Instead, he walked over to his mummy dearest and kissed her. Like Judas, he described it. She died instantly from a single shot above the left eyebrow. The Gospel According to John It wasn't even nine o'clock yet and john list had already callously executed his wife and mother in cold blood judging by his account he didn't even feel regret at the time if anything he was actually quite pleased at his own efficiency it would be hours before the kids came home leaving him plenty of time to tidy up the scene first he went to the basement and grabbed a pile of boy scout sleeping bags he unfurled one on the kitchen floor and rolled his wife's body into it dragging her through the hallways and into the ballroom His mother turned out to be too heavy to move, so he left her upstairs with a dish towel covering her face. With both bodies safely out of sight, he began scrubbing the floors in the kitchen and the attic, determined to clean away every trace of blood. But the tiles and floorboards were already deeply stained. He checked the clock. 10am. Still plenty of time to wrap up the rest of his to-do list for the day. As if it was just another day at the office, he went into the study and started drafting letters to his family and acquaintances. After that, he wrote one to his employer, sealed in an envelope with a few bits of paperwork. In the letters to relatives, he outlined justifications for breaking the fifth and most crucial of the Ten Commandments. He talked about how his kids had been corrupted by a modern life and how his wife had transformed from an attractive young woman to an unkempt and paranoid recluse. John, mate, you are hardly one to talk. You psycho. As an unkempt and paranoid crickluse, I take offence to that. Just because I haven't showered in a couple of weeks doesn't mean you can shoot me, but John Lister genuinely convinced himself that he was actually doing his family a kindness. As he saw it, they were on the verge of spiritual and moral ruin. Soon, they'd be out on the streets, cold and ashamed, living on welfare, and he would be to blame. He wanted — no, he needed — to spare them that embarrassment. As things stood, they hadn't strayed from the righteous path entirely, meaning there was still a chance they could get into heaven if only someone could speed up their arrival to the pearly gates. I like, I don't know if John List, I mean, John List is obviously a psycho, but he obviously is very religious and believes all this stuff, so he's like, yeah, if I kill them now, they're definitely getting to heaven, which is some twisted ass logic, my man. But, uh I mean, it's not real, is it? So like you're just killing them and they're just going into a void of nothingness forever. Which makes it, I mean, dude, dude no with that in mind earlier that year he had started dropping casual hints at the dinner table i remember talking about funerals and cremation and burials they thought i was being real clever what <laughs> little did they know his questions were not hypotheticals side note if a family member ever starts dropping hints like that you better start coming to the dinner table strapped yeah my dude it's like so uh have you thought about your funeral have you thought about what sort of casket you'd like it's like I'm 40. I'm, I'm a child. These, these are his kids. I'm like, I'm 14, Dad. What are you talking about, you psycho? Again, if, uh, just pro tip, if that's happening to you, uh, don't come to the dinner table strapped, but uh, definitely go to the police, okay? Specific burial instructions for each family member included in his letters, I'm pretty sure they would all have ticked the no death thanks box if they're given the choice. Sadly, their father had already made that decision for them my assignment for the day. With his confessions all signed and sealed, it was now time for List to start laying the foundations for his great escape. He made a phone call to the woman who drove his two sons to school each morning to tell her that she wouldn't have to come for them the next morning. The family were taking a trip down to North Carolina. A bunch more phone calls to her friends, neighbors, and his employer followed. After that, John took a trip into town to have the post office hold the family's mail and went to the bank to cash out the little left of his mother's savings bonds. The teller reported that he had even stayed to make sure they gave him the correct information interest down to the exact sense like a good accountant would all that deception is hard work so when the cold-blooded killer returns home he cooked himself up some lunch and ate it at the same table that was slick with his own wife's blood just hours before and at this point I'm not even surprised because we know he's totally bonkers it's like yeah yeah he had lunch at the dinner table. well he just shot his wife and his mum that morning so it doesn't really surprise me that he's just chilling out having lunch it's like yeah, yeah yeah and then he cut his wife's head open and used the top of her head as a bowl for some soup i'll be like yeah i mean it's not a stretch is it exactly As he was finishing up, the phone rang. It was the nurse at the high school. His daughter Patricia wasn't feeling well. That was unexpected, but not unwelcome. John was a little worried about what might happen if two kids arrive home at once, so any chance to bring them back one by one was welcome. So he drove to the high school to bring Patricia back to 431 Hillside. Just moments after she stepped through the door, he pulled out his 22 caliber pistol. and A few minutes later, Patricia lay next to her mother in the ballroom. After a couple more hours of admin it was time to pick up the younger son fred from his football game just like his sister before him the teenager met his end just seconds after he stepped through the door now three bodies lay side by side in the ballroom pedantically arranged in a rope list approached massacring his family with the same clinical efficiency that he applied to every area of his life <laughs> i love efficiency but <laughs> why The last to arrive was John Jr., who was just turning into Hillside Avenue when his younger brother was murdered. The last victim must have sensed that something was very wrong when he saw his father standing there with a vacant malice in his eyes. He was the only one who might have had a chance to escape. Sadly, that wasn't to be. One gunshot sent the 15-year-old falling to the floor and then, quote, I don't know whether it was only because he was still jerking that I wanted to make sure that he didn't suffer or that it was sort of a way of relieving tension after having completed what I felt was my assignment for the day. That's John List explaining why he chose to unload 9 further rounds into the dead body of his eldest son, emptying the magazines of both handguns into him. What the f- jesus christ john relieving tension you say just get a stress ball or something go for a massage literally anything but opening fire on your eldest son like he's a platoon of Viet Cong. yes man what the can you imagine the kind of ice-cold reptilian psychology it must take to describe such a thing in those terms i guess you could see why john list was no ordinary murderer he was something right out of a nightmare i don't understand how this guy had a family like why on earth did this woman want to marry this psycho dude they said he he didn't have any emotions from like a young age he drove her to alcoholism and pills they had three kids together this is so up the disappearing act his assignment for the day in quotation marks meaning the slaughter of all of his loved ones wasn't totally complete until the last bodies were arranged in the center of the ballroom after that the mass murderer knelt down beside them and said a prayer. He then returned to the study to pen a five-page letter to his pastor, explaining again that he was only annihilating his family to save their souls. He wrote, at least I'm certain they all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if that would have been the case. Yeah, sure, good save, mate. Wouldn't want something horrible to happen to them. Phew. if this is some twisted logic by the time he signed and sealed the last letter night had fallen and john list went back to the kitchen to cook himself his last dinner at 431 hillside avenue after that the ever prudish list washed the dishes and left them to dry In an orderly pile the last bit of preparation before turning in for the night was calling patricia's drama coach mrs sheridan at the westfield recreation commune commission to explain that she would be absent from classes for the next few weeks at dawn the next day he rose from bed packed his bags dressed in a suit and tie and prepared to start a new life on the run with a nice hearty breakfast he stacked up the letters neatly in a filing cabinet and and placed the two murder weapons next to them and left the key out on top of the dresser for the cops to find before walking out the door for that last time he turns on a recorder next to the intercom to play those classical hymns on loop ad infinitum he set the thermostat on low to better preserve the bodies and meticulously cut his face out of every photograph so that the cops would struggle to put a wanted poster together the man had thought of every single detail i mean uh, but it sort of seems like prepared and unprepared at the same time because he's like he's not disposing of the bodies he's not trying to make he's sort of half make believing that they're all running away and half make believing that they're not i mean how long is it going to be what it was like a month before they discover those bodies or something seems a bit weird he then drove to jfk with about two thousand dollars in the glove box and abandoned his car uh, as a little red herring to throw the cops off the scent yeah I, okay so before when i said he must have had some like good like prediction thing or way of keeping his life secret for him to get like a month's getaway i assumed wrongly that he was already wanted by that point but he wouldn't really be wanted until they found the bodies which was a month later which makes a lot more sense than him being like some super slick spy escape mode and then it was just a matter of hopping on a bus into the city and traveling by train to denver by the time the decaying bodies of the family were found john old identity had dissolved entirely he was now bob the fry Cook, going on with his new life as if nothing had happened so began a manhunt that would span almost two decades and ultimately be undone by the magic of forensic art and prime time television and the rest as they say is history <laughs> judgment day flash forward Normally, I have to say that I find flash forwards and flashbacks like in TV shows usually a bit confusing. Callum has written this really well. I'm entirely following, and we keep going back and forward all the time. Really nice work, Callum. You're now basically all caught up with the story of John List from birth to capture, and the bone-chilling incident at the center of his life. All that's left is to look at exactly how his past ultimately came crashing down on top of them. If we come back to that scene in the office building when a 64-year-old list is being apprehended with the fbi we find that he sticks to his story to the bitter end even as he was being interrogated he denies that he was the man they were looking for dolores his second wife of four years clung on to the belief that he was telling the truth even after bob clark was extradited to new jersey he kept playing dumb until some evidence cropped up that, that proved once and for all who he was Shortly before the murders, Liston applied for a gun permit so he'd be able to take his 9mm to the shooting range for practice. On that application was a fingerprint, which turned out to be an exact match for the man arrested halfway across the country 18 years later. That and a telltale scar behind one ear were all the evidence the prosecution needed to convincingly prove that he was the bogeyman of Westfield. The trial seeing as we just said convincingly prove i get the feeling we're gonna know how the trial's gonna go in the lead up to the trial list was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and seemed to display a psychopathic lack of remorse for his crimes in his eyes it was just a plain matter of pragmatism the psychiatrist dr miller reported quote he was trapped into believing that as wrong as it was to murder your family it was more wrong not to take care of them not take care of them i was like to take care of them like to murder them Dude, no. But to take care of them, like financially. He believed that he was saving them from the humiliation and embarrassment of being on the public dole. So of course, if you can't take care of them, you take care of them. Ah, yes, Callum and I, same page. The logic simply doesn't make sense to most people. Thankfully. <laughs> Dr. Simring added that Liszt showed no evidence of anything that approached genuine remorse. He's a cold, cold man. Yeah, he's a psycho. Total psycho, or sociopath or whatever the word is. That was very much how he appeared in court when the trial began in April 1990, cold and emotionless. Since his identity was now confirmed without a doubt, his defense team led with claims of diminished responsibility instead. Quote, I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. Mate, you coldly and calculatedly murdered your family. That you. Prison. Prison. Death penalty. I don't know. But Johnny boy, this is a court of law. Thoughts and prayers aren't legal tender here. What matters are the facts, and they quite clearly portrayed a man very much in possession of his faculties, so much so that he could meticulously plan the massacre weeks in advance and spend an entire day just tying up every loose end. Exactly. When the last line of List's letter to the pastor was read out to the jury, everyone in the courtroom gasped at how nonchalant he was about the matricide. P.S. Mother-in-law is in the hallway in the third, in the attic third floor. She was too heavy to move dude it, you're not writing down i mean yes you're writing down your crime but you're writing down your crimes to such an extent that i mean it's just persuasive jury stuff isn't it so the diminished responsibility fell to pieces and john list was found guilty in his sentencing statement on may the 1st 1990 the judge said john M. L. list is without remorse and without honor after 18 years five months and 22 days it is now time for the voices of helen alma patricia frederick and john f list to rise from the grave. By now, his children would have been in their thirties, probably with kids of their own. But their young lives were cut short, all because their own father was too cowardly to admit his own failings. For murdering them all in cold blood, without repentance, the judge gave him the maximum sentence possible, five life sentences to be served consecutively. And just like that, he began a new life with a third identity, New Jersey State Prison Inmate number 226427. Wrap up. It appears that for the rest of his days, Liszt clung to the twisted justification for his crimes. In a 2002 interview, he reiterated the claim that he killed his family to save their souls from eternal damnation. However, psychologists who have studied his case call this what it is, a pathetic, weak-willed attempt to shield himself from guilt. Incapable of seeing himself as the mean-spirited failure of a man that he clearly was, he cooked up a complex moral justification for his actions. And everything he did he was deluded enough that he still expected a happy ending in the next life quote i feel when we get to heaven we won't worry about these earthly things they'll either have forgiven me or won't realize you know what happened i'm sure that if we recognize each other that we will like each other's company just as we did here when times were better Mate, no one liked you when you were a free family man everyone thought you were a d-head. and now you're you know and no no if heaven was real you're not going there you're definitely not yeah john they probably won't even remember the whole murder thing just let bygones be bygones yeah and is it not a bit bloody optimistic that he's planning on getting into heaven himself i mean i'm not a biblical scholar but let me have a quick google whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed genesis 96. we should not be like cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother John 313 Probably best, thou not massacre thine own family, thou absolute ball bag. Callum 714 Yeah, John, the good book is pretty damn clear on this one. Murder is bad. So even though I'm not religious, I'm willing to bet that it wasn't the land of milk and honey waiting for our religious mass murderer when he passed away in 2008 at the age of 82. Ah, isn't it sad that he lived to be 82? I wish someone had killed him in prison earlier. Oh my god, I, but I mean it's like that's a joke, but also I mean is it? <laughs> the papers announced his passing at the St. Francis Medical Center on Good, Fr- on Good Friday Where he had been transferred after complications from pneumonia caused massive blood clots in his lungs. Oh, no I know we were all hoping for a struck down by holy lightning, but I guess we'll get what we can get I was hoping for a shanked in the showers to be honest dismembered appendices Number one, I'd have to say that the main hero of today's story was forensic artist Frank Bender, nineteen forty one to twenty eleven. The rest of his career is equally as fascinating as his work on this case. After volunteering to assist a coroner in his youth, he ended up becoming an expert in the creating lifelike sculptures of John and Jane Does from nothing but their skull and other remains, often leading to positive IDs. Very cool. Nice, nice career. Number 2. The name which List was living under when he was arrested, Bob Clark, was actually borrowed from a university classmate. Strangely, the real Bob Clark said he had only ever spoken to List back in their uni days. Seems oddly specific to choose that name, right? Maybe the awkward, unattractive list secretly harbored a bit of jealousy against the other man all those years ago. Yeah, I mean, these kind of psychos. Are the, so this this guy's exactly the sort of person who'd still be thinking about some petty shit all those years later. <laughs> it's like, mate, just get over it, all right? Number three, Helen Helen's medical records were examined by the defense during the trial, revealing that due to the experimental nature of penicillin and wartime shortages, she received the traditional treatment for the disease when she was diagnosed in the 1940s. Malaria. Yeah, I know this, because the malaria, um, they'd give you malaria. It would raise your temperature to such a degree that it could uh, kill off uh, the syphilis yes using swallow the spiders to catch the fly logic the common treatment for this std was a heavy dose of the tropical virus apparently old-timey doctors thought they could just inject you with anything and hope the disease is battled to the death except in this case there was actually uh, good science behind the malaria treatment it's uh, I- pretty fascinating stuff anyway but obviously uh that it'd be better if there wasn't shortages because i mean antibiotics is just better uh this has been an episode of the casual criminals thank you everybody for listening it's always cheerful, those ones where the guy kills his family. Um, this was horrible. If you enjoy the show in general, though, please do if you're listening to it in his podcast form. Leave a review. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Make it a five-star one if, if you like. Or uh, if you think it's a bit shit, you can leave a worse review. That's okay. I don't mind. I mean, it hurts my soul a little bit. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it does. Or uh, if you're on YouTube, give it a thumbs up and uh, subscribe. And thank you for watching.